Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mate. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Remember to join us at usefulidiots.substack.com to support the show and get bonus content. And this week, Katie, is a special episode. Yes, because we are not doing the four basic food groups. Uh, and that's because we have a really great long interview that we're making uh, totally free. We're not paywalling any of this interview because we think it's really important. It's with three people and it's about uh, the situation in Gaza. So no for basic food groups, but we will have the Thursday Throwdown. Yes, for people who subscribe, you will have the Thursday Throwdown as always. And that is where we go through the midweek madness of the week. And this week's Thursday Throwdown is going to be about Israel-Palestine again. Yes, because we have seen some of the most insane displays of sadism and even open calls for genocide from U.S. politicians, including Lindsey Graham, who said about Gaza, level the place. He literally yeah. said that on national TV. So we're going to be reacting to that and a whole lot more craziness. And if you missed our Monday morning, you can watch that because we break down some of the many ways that the U.S. media uh, kind of shares its bias pro-Israel, anti-Palestine bias, wears it on its sleeve. So that's a good guide for people also. And a quick word about this interview. Just to clarify our position on this, when it comes to, you know, Katie, I, I think you agree with me, there's no condoning here of any violence against civilians, um, Israeli civilians or Palestinian civilians. But to properly understand what happened, what Hamas did, there needs to be context, and that context is virtually absent from U.S. corporate media. And so that is our intention with this week's interview, to provide context that is usually missing, where Palestinians are reduced to caricatures, and all the vital history of apartheid and ethnic cleansing and occupation is erased. And so that yeah. is what we're trying to do in bringing you this interview today. And I just want to say, I do have relatives in Israel, and Part of why I think it's so important to provide this context is because in addition to, of course, valuing Palestinian lives, which is something that surprisingly high uh, amount of people don't do. But in addition to that, if you care about Israelis, you need to understand how and why this happened. And the irony is that there are op-eds at like Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, which make this argument. Um, an argument that some people are dismissing as anti-Semitic or insensitive. But if we want to end this violence, then you can't have people living under occupation. So let's go to the interview. First, we are joined by Yamna Patel of Mondo Weiss and Mohammed Shahada, who is a Palestinian writer from Gaza. And later on in the interview, we are joined from Gaza by Rafat Alagur. Thank you so much, Mohammed and Yumna, for joining. Thanks for having us. So, Yumna, you are in Bethlehem. What is happening on the ground uh, where you are in response to what is happening in Gaza? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, things in the West Bank right now are very tense. Certainly, it looks nothing like what Gaza looks like. Um, but since Sunday, so for about 
three, four days now, um, the West Bank has been under complete lockdown. So almost immediately after this whole thing began, the Israeli military announced a complete closure of the West Bank and all of its checkpoints inside the West Bank and uh, leaving the West Bank. And so, you know, so I'm in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem City, all the checkpoints that leave the city have been closed. The gates have been closed. Um, and then where there aren't these metal gates, uh, like the the army has gone in and put in giant cinder blocks and, and dirt mounds so people can't get out. And the same goes for, for the surrounding villages. Um, some people have been able to, to, to move around, but large part, everyone is, is kind of stuck. Um, there have also been confrontations across the West Bank and, and obviously protests from Palestinians in support of their fellow people in Gaza that have been violently suppressed by the Israeli army. I believe the latest numbers that we had was somewhere around 26 people, including at least four children, have been killed by Israeli soldier and Israeli settler gunfire since Saturday. So things are happening in the West Bank. People are going out in the street. People are protesting. I think we can definitely expect larger protests and larger numbers out in the street on on Fridays. That's a typical, you know, day of protest here. Um, and just just this evening, we got reports that uh, at least three Palestinians were killed in a Nablus area village by allegedly by Israeli settlers. So there were reports that armed Israeli settlers uh, raided the village of Qusra and began shooting at people. And so at least three people were killed and, and others were injured in that. So that is the, the latest of what's happening. And, and amidst all of this, Itamar Ben-Gavir, the national security minister, is moving forward with plans to arm thousands of Israeli settlers in the West Bank and also in, in, in different parts of, of Israel. And so things are expected to get much, much worse. And uh, Mohammed, you've been doing a lot of debunking of rumors uh, that have been taken as fact and presented as fact by many people. Uh, can you share some of the most important things that you think have been misrepresented? And of course, Yumna, feel free to jump into this after. Yep, yep, so absolutely. So now the official narrative that's been disseminated in, in Europe, the US and, and the Western world at large is basically one of rape and decapitated heads, as well as executions of civilians, tortures and, and burning casualties, some of them alive, some of them after they died. The problem here is twofold. The first one is that all of it is unfounded, unsubstantiated, and yet international media, I've seen a lot of mainstream media taking it at face value, putting it literally on the front page of major newspapers, even newspapers that are usually sort of center-left, not just right-wing. So that has been shocking on a major level because every single one of these claims did not have any evidence to substantiate or back this ginormous theatrical um, falsehood that aims to dehumanize the population of Gaza, create a major shock that renders the entire population of Gaza a legitimate target. And the other thing is the insensitivity of it to Israelis themselves. So it's the Israeli government that's going out and telling parents and families of Israelis that are held captive in Gaza that your children, your loved ones are being raped, tortured, executed, and burned alive. It takes an extra level of cruelty to go and tell 
worried sick parents that your kids are being burned alive, raped and executed when you know none of it to be true. From the first minute that Hamas has taken captives in Gaza, and you can dig into that deeper if you'd like, but from the first minute there was evidence showing out of Gaza of some of these captives at least being treated safely out of a strategic value. Let's say now put morality aside out of a pure strategic value because they are worth a lot more in terms of freeing Palestinian captives and illegally detained Palestinians under Israel's administrative detention without charge, trial or um, evidence. They are worth a lot in terms of freeing more of those Palestinians than did. So basically, that's why they have a vested interest. The morality might contribute to it, but they have a vested interest in keeping them alive and well to get a higher number of Palestinians out. It's basic common sense. It's just the extreme sort of orientalist, humiliating and dehumanizing lunacy of it that I find is very spectacular. Yumna, do you have anything you want to add to that analysis? Yeah. So, I mean, in addition to to everything that Mohammed mentioned, we just ran this article on Mondo Weiss like a couple minutes ago, basically breaking down specifically the claims of beheaded babies. And we looked into the fact that basically what seems to be the source of these these claims that were told to foreign press in the the Kivaraza kibbutz, which is where all of these claims originate from this one kibbutz. And I, I posted like a thread about this and a lot of people have been posting about this. Um, but we break it down in this article is basically the Israeli army took foreign press on a tour of this kibbutz to show them um, what had happened there and the bodies of, of all these Israelis that had been killed. And what seems to be the originating source um, the soldier that was was quoted and that was filmed telling um, the journalists about uh, the the alleged beheading of, of 40 Israeli children that we now know has been parroted all across Western media, not just in the U.S., but also um, in the U.K. as well. And has actually, you know, been alluded to by by the president himself. Um, it actually started with uh, Major David Ben-Zion, which, according to his Twitter bio, he's the deputy head of the Settler Leadership Organization, the Samaria Regional Council, and a member of the board of directors of the National Fund for Israel, which is this quasi-governmental agency that uses to that is used to acquire land in Palestine. In the video clip, he speaks directly to the camera, says the soldiers found children with their heads cut off. Earlier this year, Ben Zion, following the attack that settlers did on Hawara, where they burnt down entire um, Palestinian homes and and cars and, and vandalized property, he said, you know, here in Hawara, the blood of our children, the residents of Samaria who were murdered here an hour ago was spilled on the road. The village of Hawara should be erased today. Um, and so the, the, basically the, the source where this claim that the Israeli military's official spokesperson person has actually said, we cannot verify these claims that uh, children have been beheaded. But seemingly the source for this is a violent settler who was previously called for genocide of Palestinians. And so I think that in and of itself should, you know, put into question the the nature of, of these allegations. But at the end of the day, and sort of the 
what we say in this article is whether or not these allegations and these claims of beheaded children and rape, which are, are horrible, horrible things, whether or not they they prove to be true or not, as more investigations and hopefully independent investigations by human rights groups come to light, um, a lot of the damage has been done. And we've seen the international media and the Western media run with this, these claims and this sort of orientalist Islamophobic discourse that, that Mohammed mentioned that is essentially being used to justify genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. So it was, it was, um, it comes from this uh, settler, this fundamentalist settler, and then an I-24 journalist claimed she saw them, the he- the babies, and then admitted well, that she was just told that, right? Well, yeah, she said in her report that the soldiers say they found babies with their heads cut off. None of the, and so I-24 said this, CNN repeated this, uh, The Independent published this. And a lot of these places, like in the independent, in the in the article itself, they said, you know, we have not been able to independently yeah. verify those claims, but they ran with that sensational headline and it was on the front page of all of these newspapers. Right. Um, and so, but none of them, like not even CNN in this, this um, video that they posted to their social media, they didn't say whether CNN had independently verified those claims um, either, but everyone is running with this narrative. I mean, I did an interview earlier today with ABC News and the journalists started asking me um, if I condemn, you know, Hamas terrorism because clearly they've raped, the mass raped women and beheaded children. And I was like, have, you know, have you verified this? Um, and I, I don't think they have, but these are so deeply entrenched now in the discourse and the Western media, U.S. politicians, everyone is just running with it. Yes, there's a whole theatrical aspect to it that's very important. Like the reality has been ugly enough. So adding this layer of theatricality to it, this design to shock, to cause this major um, repulsiveness towards Gaza, is a very conscious effort to make Gaza dehumanized and a legitimate target, all of it collectively. And what I find most striking about that is at the same time that Israel goes out and says that this number of kids have been killed, there is almost a total blackout about maybe four, five, six times the number of kids that have been killed in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes. There's about 270 kids that have been killed, blown into pieces quite literally. In Jabalia, that was one of the worst massacres that happened in the last five days. I've seen most people I know, I've seen that day, most people I know in Gaza were in tears out of the shock and the fear that it's going to be their turn next. We're talking about a refugee camp and the size of an area of 1.4 square kilometers with 120,000 people living in it. And the night before, Israel gave evacuation orders to the nearest town, Beit Hanun, for people to go and move into Jabalia. And once they moved in, then the busiest market of that refugee camp was bombed and more than 60 people killed. It was one of the worst atrocities I've seen in the last five days. So you have a total blackout over that, over the 100% clear-cut case of children being bombed, carpet bombed, almost quite literally, and at the same time engage whether or not this happened without any evidence to back it to begin with, whether or not the IDF is a trustworthy source. 
The second thing is that you have clear evidence of the IDF lying last night. So they published a footage themselves showing that um, they engaged in a fire exchange with four militants and eliminated them, etc. But the footage that the IDF itself has shown, which has been doctored towards the end, shows that the four people were unarmed and their shadows exposed that they had their arms raised up in the air before they were shot from the back. And then weapons were implanted next to the corpses. Then you get to the more bizarre claim of mutilation of corpses and beheadings at the same time that you have tens of footages coming out of Israel of Israelis urinating on bodies of Gazans, corpses just piling up in the street, some of them being swept away by bulldozers. And at the end, the latest footage was basically Israeli, uh, an Israeli group driving back and forth over a corpse and laughing hysterically. And the last thing is the Israeli government, it's the most ironic thing. You have the most right-wing government in Israel's history with sitting members in the government and in the ruling coalition who not a week ago were out chanting for a settler called Amiram bin Alu'el and saying Amiram was right. Lemorson Harmelech, one of the senior lawmakers, members of Knesset for Ben Gvir's faction, she described Amiram as a holy saint, quite literally, verbatim, a holy saint. Who is Amiram bin Alu'el? He's an Israeli settler that went and burned down an entire family with two babies and their parents. And one of them sustained burns that he is still suffering from until today. And you have an Israeli government calling him a saint, calling him a hero, and literally holding signs that say Amiram was right. So all of that is ignored completely, and you engage with a distractive fiction. That is what I find most repulsive. I want to ask you both to respond to the Israeli defense minister. His name is Yoav Gallant, and he said, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we will act accordingly. אין מים, אין דלק, הכל סגור. אנחנו נלחמים בחיות אדם, ואנחנו נוהגים בהתאם. ימנה, אם אתה יכול להתחיל לזה ראשון. כן. אני חושבת שזה, עוד פעם, חלק מהקמפיין של דה-הומניזציה של פלסטינים. אני חושבת שזה לא יכול להיות יותר בלעד מזה, בגלל שאנחנו קוראים אנשים אנשים, נכון? ואנחנו רואים את הרטוריקה like Defense Minister Gallant and the highest levels of Israeli government. They're being repeated by U.S. officials and these sort of lines about, you know, this is pure evil and bar total, you know, barbarism. I think those are some of the words that, that Joe Biden used yesterday in his address. And so this, this rhetoric is completely dehumanizing. And when you convince people that human beings are not human, that is a mandate for murder. And it's very clear what Israel is trying to do. It is trying to um, preemptively justify the execution and the mass killings of Palestinians, largely civilians, in, in Gaza. And I mean, we've been discussing this a lot, um, you know, with, with my colleagues and, and friends and, and that sort of thing. And 
it feels, you know, a lot like what we're seeing now happen in real time with the rhetoric that's being used by by the Israeli government and also by the West. Um, feels a lot like when Americans were being sold the Iraq War, you know, and the and back in the '90s, the allegations about Saddam Hussein, you know, taking babies out of incubators and leaving them on the floor to die, and using that as an excuse to go in and invade Iraq. So, it's. It's crazy to me that, you know, we've studied how America lied to the American population to justify the war in Iraq. And now we're seeing the same tactics being used in this case. And I think it's just very, very clear what is happening here. And um, I mean, we're all, especially as Americans and people in the West, we're all party to it, right? Is this this narrative that we're being sold to to justify the the, the mass killing of, of Palestinians. It's also interesting because you have people kind of claiming that Israel's not at war with uh, the people of Gaza; they're at war with the with Hamas, and yet the punishment that they're inflicting is collective. Right, and and that's what's totally missing from this whole thing. And you know we. I, I tell myself, you know, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised because that literally is what happens every single time that Israel bombs Gaza is that, you know, Palestinian civilians are just cast aside and disregarded as collateral damage. But in this case, where so much of the narrative is centered and so much of the justification for what is happening in Gaza is centered around the killing of Israeli civilians, the fact that, you know, in comparison, no attention is being paid to, as Mohammed said, the killing of 260, 270 children just in the span of, of three or four days. I mean, I have never, I have never seen the amount of profiles and interviews with the, the families of victims and captives and civilians who were killed, um, that I've seen, you know, of mainstream media in the U.S. interviewing these Israeli families and doing deep dives into how they were abducted, how they were taken captive, their stories. I have never seen this level of attention paid to one singular Palestinian that has been abducted from their home in the middle of the night or Palestinian Americans like Shireen Abu Akla, who were killed in broad daylight. Um by, by Israeli forces. And so just to see, we all know there's a double standard. We know that it exists, but to just see the magnitude of it playing out in front of our eyes is, um, is dumbfounding. Yeah. Nikki Haley tweeted after in response to the news that some Americans were among those killed uh, by Hamas said, Americans were killed. This is personal. This is personal now. Uh, yeah. But of course, it wasn't personal for her when Israeli forces killed Shireen Abu Akleh, who's also an American. Right. And, right. and uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. Or racial Corey, yeah. you know, uh, and many other Americans. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. I mean, the way that I, I watched Biden's address yesterday, so and it, it was so serious and so um, tormented by the killing of American citizens. And to then compare that with the way that he skirted around. The killing of Shireen Abu Akla, that they wouldn't even meet with her family when he came on a trip here, um, is just, it's, it's wild. 
And for people who don't know who Rachel Corey is, this was uh, in 2002, it must have been. Uh, it was during the Second Intifada. Rachel Corey was a young American in her 20s, went to Gaza, was standing in front of a Palestinian home that was said to be bulldozed. And these really bulldozer just ran her over and killed her. And it was a similar treatment. There was, you know, her parents tried to get justice, of course, were stonewalled. It's a very similar story. Um, and a, a small, like, what she went through and what Shireen Abu Akleh went through, it's just a small microcosm, microcosm what happens to Palestinians um, by, by the masses. Um, Mohammed, um, did you want to respond to the defense minister's comments about calling Gazans human animals? Well, it's basically been Israel's consistent policy for the last 17 years, and it's particularly what led to this. I'm happy that it's getting attention now for the extremity of it, but it's been literally what they were saying all the way from 2007. The most recent was 2017, the Israeli defense minister, or 2018, Israel's defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, when the IDF shot a journalist, a friend of mine, at Gaza's borders, and then he came out and said um, that there are no innocents in Gaza. That's Avigdor Lieberman. Then he said in another interview with, um, I think, an Israeli conservative newspaper, he said, quote verbatim, our policy in Gaza is to keep their heads above the water, their bodies drowned, and nothing else. We're not animals like them. Then you have the more moderate Israelis the head of the opposition, Benny Gantz, saying in 2019-20, saying that basically we're not animals like Hamas, we're not animals like them, we will give them food and water, but, quote, we will not allow real development, any real development in Gaza. But all the way back in 2007, when the blockade started, it was um, um, Israel's prime minister at the time, Ehud Olmert, who's now widely celebrated as an icon of peace, who said at the time that basically uh, where Gazans should just walk, use their feet, we're cutting all fuel supplies and all electricity, they should just get to walk instead. And that started with a blockade that didn't allow even pasta in Gaza. John Kerry was a senator at the time, visited the area of the Gaza Strip from the outside. Israel does not allow him in, doesn't allow any American officials into Gaza. So he basically asks and says, why is pasta unallowed? And they say, well, pasta is not humanitarian. We strictly allow only humanitarian uh, things into Gaza, humanitarian items. And once the blockade starts to ease after Israel's most atrocious operation at the time, Operation Cast Lead, when they used a huge amount of white phosphorus um, munition on Gaza, when they went for a ground invasion, when they flattened entire neighborhoods, after that, with the international pressure boiling up, Israel says, okay, we allow hummus into Gaza, processed hummus that was under Benjamin Netanyahu. And you can go and check the article in Haaretz by Amira Haas. The article says processed hummus is allowed, but processed hummus with a topping is not allowed. That's a security threat. Processed hummus with olives. Olives, peppers, exactly. garlic. Yeah, yeah, so that's not allowed. Only pure processed hummus. Otherwise, it's a security threat. And ever since you have this very routinized, very bureaucratized form of non-life in Gaza. You have a machinery that keeps Gaza entrapped in a permanent state of non-life where almost everybody I know there, young people, they reach to the age of 35 without ever having had a job. 
although highly educated engineers, doctors, accountants, lawyers, etc., without being able to afford to fall in love, to start a family, put food on the table, move out of their parents' house, have any sorts of life whatsoever. And a lot of them, they usually say, I'm afraid I'm going to die before I ever experience living. So basically, we've had this excruciating 17 years long siege on Gaza that is now exploding in Israel's face. It, so the statement by Yuav Gallant is not something new. It's just our daily reality, which is why you had a lot of Gazans in, in the beginning of the escalation cheering what had happened when the Finns collapsed, because that Finns, it's the most violent and the most oppressive and the most hated symbol of oppression in Gaza, of the blockade, because the area before the fence is flattened and grazed completely by Israel's orders up to five to 300 to 500 meters. So it's a plain area. And once you are there, you stand up looking with immense fear of getting shot by IDF soldiers. But if you manage to get a glimpse, you see everything on the other side much greener, quite literally, sparsely populated. You see parks, gardens, farms, swimming pools, settlers having or Israelis having fun and partying around. And then you turn your back and look back at Gaza and you see everything that is opposite of that. So the symbolism of managing to break out of Gaza, I've seen a lot of people that were in tears as soon as they literally stepped a foot outside because people in Gaza, they believe the air smells differently if you cross that fence. Most of them have never managed to see the other side of that fence, have never seen any Israelis at all, aside from the military, the soldiers, the aircrafts, the tanks, etc. And the other thing about it is basically killing your fear, vanquishing fear, being able to stand in front of that fence without shaking, without your knees not being able to carry you because you're worried that IDF soldiers are going to shoot you. And the last dimension of it is basically this sort of despaired, desperate hope because the blockade has cultivated so much hatred, so much despair, and so much rage amongst the population where depression and PTSDs reached to the rate of 90%. So basically, the last one is a desperate hope that capturing Israelis would convince the Israeli government to release 4,500 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons without any sort of a fair trial or due process, trialed in kangaroo military courts with a conviction rate of 99.74%. At the same time, the conviction rate of Israeli attacks reported against Palestinians is 1.8%. It's caricatorial evil. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Well, let me ask you. So Hamas's strategy here, was it to basically take Israelis hostage and then use that to secure the release of prisoners and also maybe try to get an easing of the blockade of the Gaza Strip? And did Hamas not think about the possibility that Israel would do exactly as it always does and is doing now, which is just punish 
Gazan civilians and destroy entire apartment buildings and now threaten even worse mass killings than it's carried out before. I, I just I'm wondering how you think about Hamas's decision as a strategy here um, for for achieving their goals. I've been looking into this very much since the first day, just trying to make sense of it. I've literally been just pinching myself for the last five days to see if any of this is real. But the picture that I have based on an information from the ground is as thus. This sort of operation, it was exercised for and prepared for all the way from 2017, 18. So it's five years in the making, but not as a plan that we intend to attack, but as a scenario that this is one of their options. And it's the military wing that's detached from the political office. You have to detach three things with Hamas, a local government, military wing, and a political office. There is a fourth thing with charities and welfare that's more minor. But basically, so the military wing says that all the previous wars, all the previous assaults and rounds of escalation have led to absolutely no breakthrough in Gaza. So they start preparing this option, one of the different options they had, and they say this is going to be the all-out war. It's almost like taking a, a throwing yourself at death. Either we break free or we die. So that was one of the scenarios that they've been building. My understanding is that the political wing was very convinced that maybe um, negotiations and mediation would lead to alleviating and lifting the blockade. So that with the great march of return in Gaza, I see a lot of, of people being impressed with this really pro-democracy movement. But it, at the same time, it's tantalizing for Gaza because all my friends were at the fence, more than 100,000 people marching every Friday regularly with not a single rifle, not a single weapon, and not a single Hamas flag, Palestinian flags, bare-chested, overwhelmingly nonviolent, going to the fence and literally getting shot Israeli soldiers taking pot shots at them. So that there was immense hope that this protest would lead to a breakthrough, but it led only to what people in Gaza call a painkiller, a sedative. So that's what they refer to these minor humanitarian interventions. It was literally getting $100 cash handouts from Qatar, uh, Israel expanding the fishing zone in Gaza from three kilometers to five kilometers and still shooting at fishermen and not allowing fiberglass or boats or equipment. And it's just these sort of minor humanitarian adjustments to contain and and not sort of numb the population, pacify them. So it didn't lead to anything major, which is why for the last five years, the politicians in Hamas kept saying, give us a chance, this might work, this might lead to something. That's according to them. That's the internal narrative at the moment, is that they tried with the Qataris, with the Egyptians, with mediators from the United Nations, the Quartet, etc., and it didn't lead to anything. And they cite, I think, four or five things. The situation in the West Bank, unprecedentedly violent, literally I met Palestinians from the West Bank. Ironically, you can only meet them in Europe or in the US or anywhere else other than Palestine itself, because it's impossible for a Gazan to cross to the West Bank. And I met some of them highly educated, wealthy, sort of living in the bubbles in Ramallah, in Jerusalem, here and there, who are not exposed to the reality of the occupation to the same extent as Hebron, for instance. And that was a couple, a month and a half ago. And the sense I get from most of them is sheer terror. 
existential threat. They basically say every day I take my car to cross from area A to B, settlers are throwing rocks at the road. The village right next to Ramallah, not just one, but most of the villages nearby Ramallah were attacked by Israeli, sol by Israeli soldiers and settlers, and the settlers go hand in hand with the army protecting them. And they burn houses, they shoot at people, they do whatever they want. So that's number one, getting an unprecedented level of settler violence. Then they cite the Aqsa Mosque of literally Israel's lunatic national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, saying that uh, we're taking over, we're doing this and that, and sort of fulfilling the prophecy that Palestinians fear the most of losing the symbol of their existence, the Aqsa Mosque. And then they cite the issue with the settlement expansion, that it's going beyond everything humanly possible or everything imaginable for the last two decades. And the issue with prisoners, you have a an Israeli minister that, like Israelis themselves, they call him Jabba the Hutt or the Peter minister because it's just lunacy on the next level. He's sitting on his chair with a tray full of food for a video on TikTok with a smile from ear to ear, stuffing his face with freshly baked bread and saying, guess who's not getting any? Palestinian prisoners are not getting any of this. And then reducing their shower time from... Uh, to two to four minutes a day per person, increasing the number of Palestinian detainees in each wing and doing all these sort of small, tormenting, pointless, senseless measures just to provoke Palestinians. So these things pile up. And the last thing is basically Gaza is being emptied. We have about 200,000 young people, the most resourceful, the most educated, the ones with the money, the ones with the, all the qualifications that are leaving to become asylum seekers or even illegal undocumented migrants in Turkey, in Malaysia, in Egypt. There's 20,000 Palestinians from Gaza and Egypt without any papers that are not allowed to work, have a life, have a residence permit, and some of them stuck for years. So this sort of collapse of society that they saw, that's the fifth thing they cite. And then they say that these things built up together, that they said, okay, now the politicians failed. We tried your way for the last five years. It didn't produce anything. So we go for this sort of all-out confrontation. That's the narrative, again, that they have internally. And the, I heard from at least three resources or three sources that they were warned that there is an Israeli imminent attack. And the reason that substantiated this sort of warning they got is that the Israeli cabinet the Israeli prime minister and his cabinet quite literally leaked to the media not so long ago, I think two or three weeks ago in the in September, that they were planning to assassinate Hamas top leaders. And they were giving names, Saleh Haruri, he's going to be taken off. And they were saying it quite openly. We're going to go after Hamas leaders. We're going to go after them in Gaza and abroad, which breaks this sort of whole ceasefire understanding they had with Israel for the last four years. This quiet for money of Netanyahu literally pouring uh, millions of Qatari cash into Gaza on a monthly basis and saying to the media openly, money to Hamas is, quote, part of a strategy to keep Palestinians divided. Whoever is in favor of preventing Palestinian statehood should be in favor of the Qatari money going to Hamas. That's in the Jerusalem Post. That's the headline, basically. So you have this sort of um, political apparatus failing and having a warning that there's an imminent attack and substantiated by the Israeli threat and having these five developing and concerning unprecedented sort of existential threat to Palestinian being that they cite. 
which is why they decided to go all in at once. And I'm not sure what the logic is of what they hope to achieve, but it was more of a process of elimination. They say that everything else failed, so it had to go that way. Perhaps they hoped for a regional confrontation for the West Bank to come out as well, but that did not materialize. But the way the operation was carried out itself, I've also learned some details about that. But I don't want to take too much time if you want to jump in. Sorry. Um, no, I am intently listening to everything that you're saying. This is great. So Thank you. So basically, the operation, they start at 6.30 sharp with uh, this sort of barrage of projectiles, homemade rockets or projectiles that they make inside Gaza primitively. So they start with these to create a cover, and at the same time, they have a simultaneous attack that Israelis themselves are saying this is brilliant, and that's not my own terms, and saying that this took them completely by surprise the way that it was coordinated and very much like, um, worked on to the narrowest detail. So basically what I heard is that every Hamas militant was trained and learned exactly which military base they will go to and which room in that base they will try to take over. It was detailed to that level. So basically that's initially the plan. They go with simultaneous uh, infiltration through tunnels, through uh, cutting the fence with these sort of paraglides to a lesser extent and through some troops going by sea or some militants going by sea in inflatable boats. And once they arrive there, the plan is clear. Take over Israel's military bases. All the military bases around Gaza paralyze it. And they also have some sort of primitive drones, homemade drones again in Gaza that they developed with the help of some engineers sympathetic to Palestinians. One of them is uh, Zawari, a Tunisian engineer that Israel assassinated. So they made these homemade drones that they used to paralyze Israeli surveillance, tanks, etc. And they use some sort of, of, of signal jamming technology. And once they're in, their mission is clear. Go and take over the Israeli military bases, which are perceived to be invincible, invulnerable. You cannot take over it very easily. Once they're there, they actually take over all the military bases around Gaza in the matter of minutes. That's their internal narrative. They say they were quite surprised that they managed to take over all these military bases and that the Israeli command in, in the south collapsed at lightning speed. And once that is established, some of them get carried away. Some of them assume positions and, and take cover to in preparation to engage with the IDF in anticipation that they would arrive. But that simultaneously coincides with the collapse of the Gaza fence. So once that collapsed, you had random people walking into Israel for the first time in their lives, but you also had a lot of other militant groups. You had, for instance, the Sarai al-Quds, the Quds Brigades, that's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement. You had Kataib Mujahideen, Al-Wait al-Nasr, Salah al-Din, all these sort of less famous groups who might be way more hardline than Hamas which is one of the reasons why Israel say we need to keep Hamas in power in Gaza, and they say it openly, the Israeli defense establishment, is because they say if Hamas collapses, the alternative is worse. Who's going to take over? Is it going to be one of these more hardline groups? So the fence collapses, and anyone without a plan, without a central command, just goes in and do whatever they want at free will. And that creates total chaos. 
So you see people stepping foot in Israel for the first time, and what they bring back with them is, for instance, um, I, I saw some pets being pr- brought back into Gaza. I saw some bikes, some random stuff that they found on the way and took back. And you saw some unarmed people going in. They find Israelis on the way, and then they take them and bring them back captives to Gaza in the hope to free Palestinian detainees. So it was this sort of improvised chaos, decentralized, non-hierarchical, improvised chaos. And that wreaks havoc completely. Something that I I think, well, thank you for that insight, which I I don't think we've heard a lot of that. Um, But something that I think people seem to believe, and it's, it's a little ridiculous to even respond to it, but some people I'm talking to really seem to believe that they're like, it's different. What, what Hamas is doing is different. They're doing, and then they say raping babies, decapitating people with shovels. This is sadism. And what Israel does is different. Like they're not doing that kind of stuff. They really seem to think that is like, they believe that Israelis have a respect for life or for a culture of life that um, Palestinians lack. And I think it's worth kind of reminding people of the various ways that Israel, I mean, besides the the kind of systemic dehumanization and colonialism, I think it's actually worth reminding people or teaching people uh, the way that Israel tortures people does not respect, obviously, rule of law. I mean, maybe it sounds a little ridiculous, but honestly, I'm hearing this from people who I would otherwise think of as rational people. So I think it's important to push back against that, Hasbara. Yeah, so basically, I would say it in short, in one sentence, every single Palestinian party, Hamas included, and I'm not here to defend any of them, just to state facts and observations based on my own studies and based on the writings of others. Every single Palestinian political group, including Hamas and the Islamic Jihad, have openly supported an international criminal court probe into alleged war crimes by all parties to the conflict in the occupied territories. In Israel, there is not a single Israeli Zionist political party. The Arab party is excluded, and I don't even think that they made the statement in support of it. But there's not a single Israeli Zionist party that came in support of an ICC probe into Hamas and Israel. So if you're so sure that Hamas are the bad guys and the criminals and that your conduct is going by the book, then submit and be compliant with a probe of the International Criminal Court. There's only one exception to that. That was a member of the uh, sort of very leftist Israeli party, Meretz. Uh, I don't remember the name of the gentleman. He was uh, Minister of Health in the last government. And he didn't say particularly that he supports it, but he basically said that, what do you expect? All the things that are happening in the occupied territories, what did you expect? And it's a legitimate question to ask that. And all hell broke loose on his head from every Israeli politician. It's almost an act of political suicide to say that let's uh, let's be cooperative with an, an ICC probe. So that's the short answer. The long answer, as I said, with this sort of escalation or operation, once the fence collapsed, once you had this sort of total chaos, people were acting based on their instinct, based on their repressed feelings and based on their own will. So you have an Israeli journalist, Yossi Melman, a security a political analyst who wrote in Haaretz, a very senior Israeli analyst. 
He wrote in Haaretz calling for a humanitarian uh, corridor in Gaza and a prisoner, immediate prisoner swap of kids and, and women in Gaza in return for Palestinian kids and women in Israel. But in that article, he says that we see clearly that some of the Hamas militants that came into Israel had some humanity in them, because you saw in the footage that not all of them were cruel, but you saw in the footage, that's his own words of people reassuring uh, Israeli women that don't worry, we're Muslims, we're not going to hurt you. That's what he's narrating. So he says that basically some of them had a sense of humanity in them. But as I said, once it became this sort of decentralized chaos and all hell broke loose, you have 17, a 17 years long buildup of dehumanization. And it doesn't go only one way of Gaza being dehumanized, but it also goes the other way of Israel being dehumanized to Palestinians because people in Gaza, their only interaction of Israel, the only thing they know about the word Israel is basically the suffocation, the slow death, the air jets, the fighter jets, the tanks, the soldiers, the airstrikes, the bombs, the pain, the death, the prisoners. And with one more detail, if you live in Gaza for one, two days, you will notice one thing very striking. There's this buzzing noise that never stops, no matter where you go in the Gaza Strip. It's Israeli drones surveilling the air 24-7 at all times of the day. And it gets most intense at night. It, you cannot sleep at night because of it. That's one of the reasons why you have kids, 91% of Palestinian kids in Gaza have PTSDs. Is because of these drones on top of your head, predator drones that are equipped with rockets to kill at any minute, literally looming on top of your head. So that creates a dehumanization of Israelis as well, that once people went outside of Gaza with this immense repressed rage, despair, and hatred for what's been done to them, some of them did not see Israelis as basically... Um, the, they were not very sympathetic to Israelis that they found on the way because they see them as complicit in their oppression. And it's one of the things with the, the rave party that is that occurred near Gaza and occurred, I think, near to the Bayeri military base is basically people in Gaza saying, who on earth would have a rave party right yeah. next an open air prison right next to Muhammad, I, I apologize. I'm going to cut in because we're actually joined now by a guest from Gaza. We're going to bring him in right now. Um, Rafat Alarir. Rafat, thank you so much for joining us. You are a, a Palestinian academic and an editor. Uh, you're joining us from Gaza. And we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, if you could tell us what's been going on um, around you. Thank you for having me. Marhaba, Muhammad. Kithal, how are you? Refat is actually my mentor. Oh, wow. Friend, oh. Katie, Aaron. Hi. Uh, Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for, for having me. I'm sorry for being late. It's, uh, we'll forgive you, I think. It's extremely impossible. I listened to what Muhammad has just said. Impressive uh, input. I was just uh, texting somebody on WhatsApp that it's complete and utter destruction and despair here in Gaza. There is morale. Don't get me wrong. We believe. We have faith. But what Israel is doing, what Israel uh, has been promising uh, to do to Gaza, to Palestinians for, for decades, is being implemented right now. In a couple of uh, days, three, five days, 
we had Israel, Israeli officials openly call for genocide, literally using uh, a Nazi discourse, uh, describing Palestinians as savages, uh, uh, unhuman, uh, open calls for wiping Gaza out, turning Gaza into a city of... Uh, these are not empty words. They are not... I think you could hear the, the bombings in the distance. Uh, these are not empty words or even wishes or promises. Israel has never kept a promise to Palestinians. Not once did Israel keep a, a promise to Palestinians. But it only keeps its promises when it promises blood, death, and destruction. Uh, I, I, I summarize what's happening as uh, 2014 in a couple of days. The, the, the scale of destruction that took place in 2014 in 51, complete and utter destruction of whole neighborhoods, of whole blocks. And this is what Israel, uh, Israeli uh, spokesperson promised. They're not seeking uh, precision. They're seeking damage and, and, and destruction. They're, they're sending Gaza uh, to the stone, to the stone age. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the scale of destruction, the universities, the schools, the streets, the businesses. I was asked a question about the economic situation. I said it's difficult. There is more than 50% of unemployment. There's more than 50% of uh, 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 even unemployment among university graduates. They don't have a hope or scope for a better uh, life or finding a job. Some of those people get loans from banks or relatives to start their own businesses. And these businesses are mostly uh, 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 located in the heart of Gaza City, its most affluent uh, area where most of the university, uh, the, the, the government and public buildings are where most people come throughout the days. Uh, and these are gone, simply gone. We're speaking about uh, tens of thousands of jobs, of hopes, of dreams, of families, in addition to the massive scale of destruction to homes. And there is uh, uh, this thing about Gaza, like Muhammad mentioned about the, the, the buzzing of the drone that nobody understands. Unless you live in Gaza, you spend time in Gaza, you go through this. For example, when I say Israel targeted a home, what's a home? A home in America, in the UK, uh, two people, a, a couple, a kid, a dog. But in Gaza, a home is a generational building. My family home, for example, when it was destroyed in 2014 in Shuja'iya, it was four, uh, four floors. My, the, the father, this is what happens. The father builds a home and then the kids start building uh, uh, up. And if this is a gun, it, we speak about at least 60 people uh, displaced, homeless. And when this is bombed, we speak about at least, again, tens of, 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 of victims and, uh, and other, others injured. And even when Israel drops the bombs, it makes sure to destroy and damage the whole block. So even if Israel targets a home, uh, it, it, it gets all the homes ar around it. And again, the, 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 the sense, the feeling of uncertainty, of the unknown, what's going on in Shijaya, we don't know what's going on in, in everybody was forced to leave by bombs in Shijaya. My my family is scattered. My parents, my my other brothers and and sisters. And because this is a constant, people concentrate uh, whole families, extended families concentrate in one area. So when you have to leave your neighborhood, you don't have 
any uh, uh, any other place to go to because uh, your kids, your daughters, you know, your cousins and relatives basically live in the same area. When they had to leave, uh, they couldn't reach me where I am in Gaza City right now, and they had to go to other relatives because Israel bombed the infrastructure and bombed uh, the, uh, the, the roads. Uh, uh, like this Israeli uh, officials say, this is a World War II level of of, of uh, destruction. It is, and on the human level, when we speak about a thousand Palestinians killed in a few days, in five days, if this continues at the same level for ten or twenty or thirty days, as we as many expect, we're looking at fifty Palestinians dead. If Israel does not escalate, nobody believes and thinks that Israel is going to be doing the same thing every day Israel is uh, using uh, the earth scorched scorching the earth uh, yesterday in the northern part of Gaza Gaza city was pummeled by by bombs non-stop constantly for hours and, uh, and, and and hours and with Israel controlling everything and the Rafah border is closed we are fish in a barrel that's it and Israel is not only shooting with a gun or a rifle, it's dropping one, bo- one, mil- one ton uh, uh, bombs uh, at uh, the, uh, the defenseless people there. This is what I have to say about the situation and, and, and the feeling here. Rafael, I don't know if you've heard the, you know, the, some of the language coming from Israel, but for example, the Israeli defense minister saying that these are human animals and talking about a total siege of Gaza, cutting off the, the food and fuel. Um, are you experiencing that yet on the ground? And are, are people trying to flee? There's talk now of Biden trying to negotiate uh, what is being described as safe passage for Gazans to leave, but really that could just be a euphemism for more ethnic cleansing, getting people to... To leave Gaza for good, as Israel wants, leave Gaza where to Egypt. Well, that's that's the talk, but of course, you know, yeah. I I just heard this, but uh, it is ethnic cleansing. This is extermination. This is some kind of uprooting and second uh, Nakba that uh, Israeli ministers have been uh, promising. Uh, the uh, Gaza's only power plant shut down. Uh, there's no electricity coming out of the power plant that was already bombed by Israel in 2006, I think, in 2014. Uh, we are running short of running out of uh, everything, uh, electricity, water, and food, with Israel not allowing aid to get into Gaza or uh, through Egypt, for example. Again, this is a hunger game. This is starvation. Where do you expect us to, to go? Because of the experience we have been through in the past 15 years, we have batteries, we have generators, but this these could help us for, what, a couple of days, some some people, a couple of weeks maximum. We have a generator and I have a small battery here. Uh, we're working on it right now. But in a couple of days, maximum a week or two, if things don't change, uh, we're looking at a total blackout no coverage, uh, no media, no internet, uh, because you can't charge your laptop, you can't charge your mobile phone, you can't communicate with them. Not that Israel cares. Not that Israel cares, actually. Uh, and mainstream media is complicit. All these uh, malicious uh, uh, lies, rumors about uh, uh, 
what the Palestinians did in the attack on Saturday, and Israeli uh, American politicians, Nikki Haley, uh, what's his name, and the guy that drinks weirdly, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, Marco uh, Rubio. Yeah. literally called for uh, uh, finishing. That's yeah. a, uh, a final solution. They are offering a final solution. And Lindsey Graham just now has uh, somebody retweeted or co-tweeted him saying this is a religious war. A religious war between what? You are, Lindsey, you are a Christian uh, fanatic. Your end game is Armageddon. Your end game is to bring all the Jews in Palestine and, and exterminate them, force them to convert to Christianity or kill them so this is what uh, he, he's he's motivated completely and thoroughly by his anti-semitism hatred towards jews and israel knows this by the way but israel knows that he hates muslims more he hates arabs yeah. more he hates palestinians more so it's okay we can use him he helps us uh, at this stage you have children um and i was wondering how your children are holding up and experiencing this. I actually, yeah, I, I do have children. I was not, not sure if you can hear the commotion in the yeah. background. Yeah, that's not uh, too bad. Uh, there, I think there are 15 other children in my uh, small apartment. And this is the case of Gaza, the, the United Nations. And this is, again, things that don't easily get understood uh, by non-Gazans, non-Palestinians, unless you listen to Palestinian voices. Uh, there are about 200,000 uh, people displaced, sheltering in new unrun schools. But there are probably double this number displaced internally, staying with relatives and family members. And this also why this is why the number of casualties uh, uh, are, are doubled and tripled when Israel bombs homes, because some families happen to be hosting other families, mostly kids. So I know people who, the, 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 the young guys, the father, uh, they would prefer to go to the school, say, it's okay, we can take it, we can tolerate it. But the, 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 the young, uh, the women, the, the children are better kept at, at, inside a place. So there is a bit of commotion here. This is the first thing I hear my kids play, uh, 15 kids, what do you expect? Uh, but in the past, in the first four, four days, uh, I... I I usually sense some kind of development in the way things happen. These are more uh, um, bombs, I think. And uh, the, the first couple of days, usually uh, there is fear and, and, and complete uh, uh, horror and terror. The, the kids, uh, uh, can't sleep. They can't do anything. They don't go to. They don't want to go to the loo, the bathroom. They don't want to eat. They don't want to drink. And they keep screaming and uh, and you know shrieking, especially at night when they try to catch some sleep. And then they are awakened by uh, more bombs and more bombs. But then the next two or three days, everybody is numb. We get used to it. We submit to it in in a way. We get used to the noise. It's like you when you get used, and this is extremely horrible, traumatic. Muhammad quoting statistic uh, statistic that says more than ninety percent of Palestinians in Gaza, ch Gaza children in Palestine in Gaza, 
are traumatized. This is one reason because there's a war after a war. My my little Amal is seven years old, but she's also uh, uh, three wars old now. We speak about a seven-year-old going through all these massive, this the, the destructive uh, campaigns. So with this numbness, with this numbness comes the you know lack of communication, lack of you know you don't want to talk. What do you want to talk about? Because anything you you do gets interrupted in the process. If you want to tell a story, it gets interrupted. If you want to eat, it gets interrupted. If you want to pray, you stand on your prayer carpet, it gets interrupted. And then, so everybody is in a state of waiting. It's a waiting game. And the anticipation is killing. The anticipation that, is this ours? Is this going to hit us? Is this our turn? Are we going to die now? Are we going to die when we are asleep? Rafat, we're so going to let you go. We're going to let you go. Um, and we just we're so appreciative that you can take the time to, to, to talk to us. Um, anything else you want to leave us with? I think one last thing is significant to highlight uh, is the focus on uh, the misinformation, the fake news yeah. uh, that Israel manufactures and the complicity of uh, renowned journalists claiming without proof uh you know that that the two most the three uh, stories i don't want to mention them again and yeah. they turn out to be complete lies to demonize palestinians and i think israel is, ma is manufacturing more lies i am anticipating even more serious allegations against the palestinians against because this is the game it's dehumanizing strip those palestinians out of their humanity and then anything is fair anything you do to them is fair even if you kill i I, I, I posted the last stats by the Ministry of Health that says that was a couple of days ago, Israel killed uh, uh, 260 uh, children in Gaza. And everybody was in the quotes, the, the trolls, the, the pro-Israeli genocidal apologists saying they deserve it, they deserve it, they deserve it. So we need to focus more our attention in our talks and our uh, tweeting and communication on the fact that Israel always lies. Israel always lies, and we have seen this Israel doctoring videos with Razan and Najjar, the, the, the medic that Israel killed during the Great Return March, and all these lies that Israel keeps uh, spewing. This is, I think, central to our narrative as, as Palestinians and pro-Palestinians. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us. Thank here. you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Our, our thoughts are with you. Yeah, and with you thank and your you. family. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, Yumna, I wanted to ask you, you're based in the West Bank, and one of the uh, criticisms that Netanyahu has received was that his government was so hyper-focused on enforcing yes. the um, you know, continued colonization of the West Bank with the illegal settlements and brutalizing Palestinians there, that they took their eye off of uh, the Gaza uh, area. Uh, do you think there's truth to that? And And you know, what has been the reality of the occupation um, during this last period uh, of, of um, you know, b before this, this Hamas incursion happened? Sure. Um, I guess there's like, that's a two part question. So, I mean, to, to answer the first part of your question, I think we can, so far, so many people can only speculate as to you know, this was clearly a surprise attack that caught Israel off guard. We can only speculate for now as to, 
what the reason for that is, um, whether it's, you know, because they, like you said, maybe took their eye off Gaza or for some other reasons. Um, what I do think is true is that more than whether they took their eye off Gaza or whatever else it may be, I think more than anything, Israel got comfortable, you know, with this reality that it has created in Gaza. Israel essentially was operating on the assumption that it could continue to cage in a population of more than 2 million people in this prison, bomb them every couple of years into submission, um, while uh, normalizing relations with surrounding Arab countries, and then that could be its policy to to sort of maintain and subdue Gaza. And as we've seen over this weekend, that basically shattered all of those notions that Israel could essentially keep doing what it has been doing in Gaza. In terms of what Israel has been doing in the West Bank, and as what as, as Mohammed mentioned earlier, that that was cited sort of amongst some of the reasons why Hamas launched the, the operation that it did. These past two years in the West Bank have been record years of Israeli military and settler violence against Palestinians. Every year is breaking the record of the year before it. So last year in 2022, we did you know, all the headlines and, you know, Mondo Weiss, we published pieces as well about this, that last year in 2022, it was a record breaking year for the killing of Palestinians in the West Bank, and that more Palestinians had been killed in the West Bank in 2022 than they had since the UN began documenting uh, casualties in around 2005, the tail end of the second intifada. We were, before this whole weekend started, we had already passed that record, that was broken last year. And so before Saturday, I believe it was a number somewhere around 240 Palestinians had already been killed in the West Bank, the vast majority by Israeli military fire, but some as well by, by Israeli settler violence as well. And 40 of those, uh, at least 40 of them were children. And so we've been seeing an increase in in military violence, and and especially especially settler violence, and the the sort of settler state collusion, and we've seen it across the West Bank and in, in in these rural Palestinian areas that are on the front lines of these settlers. We've seen you know mobs of settlers embark on these you know pre-planned pogroms, basically where they're going through Palestinian towns, setting everything they can on fire, and even using um, you know their using their weapons against Palestinians. And, and many of these, these settler attacks have resulted in the killing of Palestinians as well. At the same time, um, I believe 2023, and I maybe need to check the number, but <clears throat> I think it was somewhere around 13,000 new settlement um, units had been approved in the first half of 2023 by um Israeli authorities under the purview of, of Bezalel Smotrich. And so we've seen these, these record levels of violence in the West Bank. And at the same time, and, you know, Mondo Weiss and myself, we've, ex we've reported on this extensively, um, that 
at the same time, we have seen this resurgence of armed resistance in the West Bank in places like Janine and Nablus, uh, where these armed militias are forming and they're growing, basically, of young Palestinians taking up arms um, because, you know, they have no other option. This year marked 30 years, just last month marked 30 years since the, the first Oslo Accords were signed. And the past year in in the West Bank especially has shown the the utter failure of, of the Accords and of that framework. And right now we're in a situation where settlements are expanding at a rapid rate. Settler violence is higher than ever. From since 2022, at least four Palestinian villages in the West Bank have been completely depopulated as a result of um, Israeli settler and soldier violence. So the continuation of the Nakba is happening every single day. And that has resulted in a situation where you have um, increasingly growing portions of the Palestinian youth who make up the majority of the Palestinian population uh, turning towards armed resistance. I want to know your thoughts on Joe Biden's uh, speech the other day. He didn't mention um, the occupation once. He didn't mention the deaths of any Palestinians. He said he basically gave Israel a total green light to go ahead and do whatever it needed. Um, What were, were your thoughts on that speech? Watching Biden's speech was, you know, a mix of Obviously, you know, not feeling surprised that this is the line that the American government is taking and that someone like Biden, who is a, you know, staunchly proud Zionist and has, has boasted, boasted about it extensively in the past, but also um, just frustration and disgust with the fact that our, you know, government and, and the president of the United States is repeating these um, you know, this dehumanizing genocidal language, re- repeating these these unsubstantiated claims, you know, of, of mass rape and and calling, uh, using language, you know, like this is barbaric and pure evil. And it was just very clear with that speech from Biden um, what Israel's plans are and what the U.S.'s role is. And right now it feels very much like the American public, certainly, but just the the general public around the world is being sold a genocide. And it is happening before our eyes. And we are being convinced through the rhetoric of Israeli politicians, the U.S. president, um, U.S. state State Department spokespeople and and everyone in between that Palestinians, specifically Gazans, are not human. And therefore, whatever happens, and we know what's going to happen. I mean, Mohammed has said it, Rafa has said it, Gazans are saying it every day. They are trying, and, and Israelis are saying it, they are trying to wipe Gaza off the map. And with Biden's speech, it was just confirmation that that is is what is going to happen. And we are we're being convinced that it's justified. We really appreciate both of you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Mohammed, um, if you want to share some final thoughts with us. Yeah, yeah, so tying into the question about Biden, based on conversations I had with some European diplomats in the occupied territories and another one in, in London. So basically, the blunt um, statement they gave me 
is that, and discreetly, is basically that there is not a single European government that is raising the issue of Gaza at all to their Israeli counterparts, not a single one, not a single European government. And I think the U.S. included or governments in the Western world, I, I believe, but not a single European government is raising the issue of de-escalation or ceasefire with Israel at all. So Gaza is completely off topic, even with the topic of dual national uh, Israeli captives in Gaza. Some of them are European, some of them are American. European governments are not raising the prospect of this sort of, of swap, humanitarian corridor, etc. None at all. They're only tasked with learning information as much as they could, the diplomatic missions. But he, one of them basically told me that Hamas and Gaza are burned for Europe for the next, at least for Gaza for the next six months, for Hamas for the next decade or two. But basically, the other thing he said is that, or one of them, the one in the West Bank is, is for the next 72 hours, there is not going to be any likely discussion about Gaza between European officials and governments and their Israeli counterparts. So they're giving, again, what I was told, they're giving Israel the full option, the full menu to do whatever it wants with an open buffet, whatever they want at all. The last thing I conclude with is basically that Israel, the Israeli military is not now talking about uprooting or eliminating Hamas, no matter what rhetorics the politicians are making. The operation's objective is basically to say, uh, to destroy Hamas's threatening capabilities. And that means at the end of this escalation, the result we're going to have is basically Gaza flattened completely, Hamas remains in power indefinitely, and reconstruction is never again in sight. The last reconstruction process in 2014, after Israel's last major war for 51 days, was never concluded until today because of donor fatigue, Western donors saying, why should we build homes if they're going to be knocked out again? Should we just build them out of Legos then? And Israeli restrictions on reconstruction materials that meant reconstruction was never going anywhere. So this time you're having a massive population that's going to be rendered homeless, internally displaced. What the Israelis themselves, Israeli military officials are saying, or Israeli government officials, is that at the end of this, Gaza is not going to have homes. It's going to only have tents. So that's the final result that everyone should keep in mind. Hamas stays in power. Gaza is pure tents and just victory images for the Israeli far right. So it's lunatic that nobody's pushing for immediate de-escalation. Well, um, maybe you can both tell us how to follow uh, your work. Uh, Yamna, you are the Palestine news director for Mondo Ice. Mm -hmm. um, where can people follow you? So you can follow our work. Um, the Mondo Ice Palestine Bureau is working around the clock to, to cover the story from all different angles. We're doing daily uh, dispatches and wrap-ups with uh, on-the-ground reporting from our correspondent, um, Tara Kajaj in, in Gaza, and that is on our Mondawais website, mondawais.net. Uh, you can also follow more of our work on our social media channels where we're doing videos on our, our Instagram and TikTok pages, and um, you know all of our correspondents, including myself, are also posting to, to our personal pages as well. And Mohammed? Oh, Twitter, and I also write in some random newspapers. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks. That was really uh, 
very informative and very moving and very upsetting. Yes. It's a very somber time. Very grateful to all those guests for taking the time to share their insight with us. And thanks to you for joining us. Remember to go to usefulidiotspodcast.com for more. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 